right. Hello and welcome to the Fearless Paranoia podcast, where we take complex cybersecurity topics and we demystify and break them down for the average everyday business owner and listener. My name is Ryan. I'm a cybersecurity architect and specialist, and I'm here today with Brian. Yeah, I go by cybersecurity attorney, but you know, it's not too catchy. So we'll, we'll just uh, we'll go right into what we're discussing today because today we're talking about war. That stuff that sounds fun as a, an eight to 10 year old boy, but becomes an absolute nightmare once you understand what's really going on. And it's constantly in the news, but I'm gonna take you back to an, an event. I was in uh, Munich. My wife and I were spending some time in Munich. She was actually there for a, a graduate or a class in her graduate program. And I was getting ready to fly back to the States. So getting ready to go to the Munich airport, which is a gorgeous airport. Munich has a, an amazing train system. So I'm going to get on the train and I put my credit card in to get a train ticket. It's about two and a half hours before my flight. Nothing's happening. I put in another card, nothing's happening. All of the electronic payment systems for the Munich train system had been knocked out by the WannaCry ransomware. Now, fortunately I was in Germany and Germany is a very cash-based society. So I had a bunch of euros on me and I was able to get on the train. Oh, by the way, the difference between Europeans and Americans is, was summed up nicely by the two gentlemen sitting across from me on the train to the airport. They were taking a train to the airport to fly to South Carolina where they were going to do work for the company that they work for, BMW. In the United States, can you imagine any BMW employee taking the train to the airport? I can't. But WannaCry was ransomware supposedly released by North Korea, and it somehow got loose and infected a ton of systems. Same thing happened several months later with the NotPetya ransomware. Now, obviously, yeah, we've talked about ransomware. We've talked about you know, systems being taken down by gangs, by threats who have financial motive. State-based hackers are a much, much different animal to deal with in the wild and have much bigger implications, or rather much different implications when it comes to your business, specifically how you recover from it. We've covered the basics of cyber liability in a previous episode, one that uh, Ryan, you were, uh, and I'm sure you're very happy about having missed due to your civic responsibilities, you know, talking about the basic understanding of what cyber liability covers. Today, we're going to discuss something very specific, and it's what's been referred to as the war exclusion. Now, languages, language varies all over the place uh, from policy to policy of what this is, but the basics look a lot like this. Quote, loss or damage caused from hostile or warlike action in a time of peace or war. Well, why is this important? It's because of some of the biggest international cyber attacks have been strongly linked or are believed to be linked to countries who are attempting to attack the infrastructure of another country. It happens a lot. We crippled Iran's nuclear program with a virus. China and North Korea are constantly hacking foreign governments and corporations for any number of reasons, oftentimes espionage on a daily basis. If a tool exists that one country can use to gain an advantage over another country, that tool will be used somehow. That's just the reality of the world we live in. Our best ideas are always weaponized. So what we want to talk about today is how, as a small business, you need to understand this concept of the state-based or nation-based attacks. We're going to talk primarily about the two attacks, WannaCry and NotPetya. These viruses cost billions of dollars in damage when they hit. They were also linked to North Korea and Russia, respectively. So there's a lot of reasons why we need to know about these types of attacks. And I want to start, Ryan, by talking about kind of the technical things. What did these viruses do? Well, to take a look at both of these, they were there was a lot of similarities between WannaCry and NotPetya, but one of the 
primary differences between them, I think, was the intent and the final goal behind both of them. Both of them leveraged heavily an exploit chain known as Eternal Blue, which was recovered from the NSA through the Shadow Brokers exploit and leak campaign. It, it was a, a protocol issue with uh, with SMB, which is server message block, uh, on the on a very high level. In most cases, it's used for file access back and forth through a file system. Uh, in a lot of cases, most people leverage SMB primarily for sharing file shares and things across networks, and that's where it opens up a lot of interconnectivity between systems, which was heavily leveraged to exploit the worming capability of uh, of the tool, which is what made WannaCry and NotPetya both extremely devastating, not just because of what they were capable of doing at their core, which is either encrypting files for ransom in the case of WannaCry or more brutally encrypting the files for ultimate wiping and destruction, which was kind of more the, the case with NotPetya. They both leveraged that same level of exploit to be able to worm fast and effectively from system to system to make sure that not only were they effective in accomplishing their goal, but they would do so on as widespread of a scale as possible. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. We're here to help make the complex language of cybersecurity understandable. So if there are topics or issues that you'd like Ryan and I to break down in an episode, send us an email at info at fearlessparanoia.com or reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter. For more information about today's episode, be sure to check out fearlessparanoia.com where you'll find a post for this episode containing links to all of the sources, research, and information that we have cited to. You can also check out our older posts and podcasts as well as additional helpful resources for learning about cybersecurity. Now back to the show. I know that recently there's there's been some additional, um, there's been some, you know, there's always new ransomware and new whatever tools, but there's a tool that came out recently and uh, several researchers have been discussing the, uh, the idea that it's nation-based primarily because of the complexity of the virus itself. It doesn't necessarily achieve more significant or greater end result if it's successful, but it seems that one of the common links between these nation-state attacks is the complexity of the virus. Is that the case, and why is that the case? Yeah, I think the complexity behind some of these, not even necessarily just complexity behind malware, but behind the complexity of the entire attack chains that are being assembled now kind of shows that there's a distinct difference in the threat actors that are out there. A lot of us in the in the IT cybersecurity or even some just the you know broader industries are familiar with the term script kiddies where you grab any person with some basic level IT knowledge, they'll get a hold of a tool and start throwing it around to see what happens with it. And there are some tools that can be pretty brutal at that level. However, they're not usually sophisticated and most well-defended perimeters, enterprises, etc., are able to to quickly shrug off most of those because they're, they're known threats. And again, there's no change in the configuration. It's a very default style attack. Malware and the delivery mechanisms, again, started very simply. They've slowly got more complex on how they propagate, on how they attack. But now there's even bigger attack chains being assembled. And that level of complexity really speaks to having a lot of funding. It speaks to gathering and being able to employ and maintain some 
pretty intense talent to be able to piece these pieces together. It involves, frankly, for the most part, it involves some theft of knowledge from others, whether that's leveraging open source tools in ways that they weren't intended, or again, like in the case of Eternal Blue, North Korea didn't develop the technology on their own. They somehow found a way to exfiltrate that from the NSA, who had internally either developed the tool or, again, had picked it up or procured it through some other means. That story in itself, I think, was always one of my favorite to reference anytime someone suggested that, for example, an encryption tool, a backdoor of sorts that only law enforcement has access to, is an absolute pipe dream because once you create a door, you have to expect that anyone can walk through it. The NSA, possibly the world's most secretive government agency, created the tool that caused such widespread damage, and it caused this damage because it got out. Well, that's exactly it, right? So they're in the espionage game the same as those divisions of North Korea's uh, either military or government, same with China, Iran, Russia, everybody else. I mean, most I would assume most governments that are of decent size and have, you know, a decent capacity in their budget to be able to put together a cyber program has already started to do it at this point. And they all want to, you know, be the fastest, the biggest, the best. They all want to leverage all those capabilities. And so, yes, they, you know, North Korea took advantage of this particular leak and they were just one of the first ones to add widespread weaponization to this tool in a public manner. I would assume that tool wasn't developed within days and leaked. I'm assuming that the it's it's probably a safe assumption that the SMB exploit was probably sitting in the NSA's playbook for quite some time before it was leaked, which means that they had probably been using it on a much more quiet scale to accomplish similar goals with different ends, I would assume, right? They want to be able to propagate quickly through networks, but probably with tools that are more geared towards, again, whatever their ultimate goals were. In the case of WannaCry, they wanted to get notoriety, they wanted to cause widespread disruption, and they wanted to make some money while doing it, which are all some of the primary goals that we've seen out of the cyber forces and the cyber attacks coming out of North Korea. They're usually doing it either for political means, for notoriety means, or for financial gain. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. For more information on keeping yourself, your family, and your company protected against cyber threats, check out the Resilience, Cybersecurity, and Data Privacy blog at www.resiliencecybersecurity.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, please like and subscribe using any of your favorite podcast platforms. And that's where NotPetya kind of took a deviation. Again, it was built off of that similar same exploit chain, starting with the ability to worm quickly through use of Eternal Blue. But they also tied in some other pieces to make it spread even more you know, in a more available manner by tying in pieces like Mimikatz, which is a, a credential harvesting or credential dumping utility. So not only was it available to spread just through unauthenticated SMB chain, but now they've got credentials, which means now they can use authenticated SMB and authenticated means to traverse those networks as well. So now you can even get into systems that maybe would have been locked down by a general authentication layer. So the worming capabilities got even more impressive in NotPetya, but what got even what was even more worth note was that there 
there was no plan to be able to reverse it, like in the case with WannaCry, where North Korea did, I think, want to make money off of WannaCry, and so they had the ability to decrypt for a price because it helped them gather money. Not Petty, I believe, was purely propagated for the, the sake of disruption and trying to really cripple an enemy, like you said in the you know in the the war clauses that we're talking about. They wanted to bring things to a standstill and a halt, and so it was created to be more of like a destructive wiper than it was really to be like a ransom tool. So Merck Pharmaceuticals is a major international company, and they were directly impacted by NotPetya. They had damages in the hundreds of millions of dollars of information lost because, as you said, NotPetya, even though it masqueraded as ransomware, it was actually a wiper. It made it so that the information that was locked up could never be accessed again, which is essentially just as bad as deleting it entirely. So they suffered hundreds of millions of dollars in, in direct damages and then lost hundreds of millions more in fees and lost business and everything like that. They sued their insurance company because their insurance company denied coverage. I've written a lot about this particular case, and uh, you can see links to that in the post that accompanies this. But the key elements are the policy had a disclaimer, as I read at the beginning, loss or damage caused from hostile or warlike action, time of peace or war. Now, the insurance company said that internationally experts agreed that the not petty ransomware was an attack initiated by Russia against Ukraine that essentially got loose. And thus, so Merck Pharmaceuticals, you know, in their lawsuit, they've, they've sued to recover these damages, and the insurance company responded saying this was an act of war, Russia against Ukraine, and that this is collateral damage. Now, you'll see in some of the other, uh, other things I've written about this case that the judge in New Jersey that decided that the war exclusion did not apply didn't actually do many people a favor in the way they decided. What he decided is that this term, the, the warlike action and this language, the language of the policy governs how it works. The language hadn't been changed, like I said, since World War I. And the result of that was the judge essentially said that no one at Merck could possibly have understood that based on that terminology that was not further defined, applied to a company whose servers were based in England, far from where the geographic bounds of this conflict would have occurred, and were not a part of the Ukrainian government, were not involved in any way you know, in the hostilities between Russia and Ukraine at the time, that they would somehow be barred from recovering under their policy because of that warlike action. Now, there are a lot of other ways the court could have ruled. The court could have said the distance from the conflict was was what did it. The court could have said that, you know, this policy doesn't apply because cyber attacks between nations doesn't involve the traditional concept of boots on the ground, which is usually how courts have interpreted these things. But essentially said that the terms of the policy didn't properly advise the insured, Merck, that this kind of thing would be excluded. The big downside to that is that now all of these insurance companies are modifying the language of their policy to extend to all sorts of stuff about this. But the biggest issue here is this was never going to be any question under the war exclusion unless the insurance company could say, aha, we know that this virus was created by one country targeting another country and that it was unleashed for that purpose, that it was a warlike action, that it was something between two existing governmental bodies of different nations. 
We're talking about attribution, being able to say to at least a reasonable degree of certainty where an attack came from, who perpetrated it, what it was for. Unfortunately, we've run out of time on this week's episode of the podcast. Next week, we will resume right where we left off, and Ryan will help us walk through exactly how attribution for these types of attacks is possible and how that impacts you as a small business owner if you happen to be the victim of one of these attacks. Thank you for tuning in to the Fearless Paranoia podcast. For Ryan, I am Brian. We hope to see you again next time. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on any of your podcast subscription systems, apps, or platforms, and we'll see you next time.